Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lissenby. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. Happy 100th episode, Kate. I am so excited. I cannot believe that this is also our 100th on-air conversation. Like how many how many hours have we talked together, Kristen? <laughs> many. Wow. Many hours. That's amazing. I'm so happy. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what a blessing like this all has been. Like I just have to take a moment to appreciate all the wonderful people, including yourself um, and our listeners who make this possible. Our amazing editor, Julio, the entire Tamed Wild Coven. Um, a podcast is a village. And I'm just so grateful for the magic and alchemy community and these conversations. And also um, so grateful for everyone who writes to us with questions and thoughts. Uh, we read everyone and try to respond to most. So thank you. Um, and we are forever trying to come up with new but also old and spooky and weird and witchy things to talk about. So thank you all for being here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Echoing everything that you're saying here, Kristen, just so grateful for this community, for you listeners, Kristen, for you, the, the whole team, Julio, yes, thank you. And yeah, just this is, this is such a team and, and a coven and so, so honored truly. Mm -hmm. Also, I, I think we did good today, so I'm excited about it. How do you feel? Yeah, you know, for our 100th <laughs> episode, we wanted to do, I don't know, something we hadn't done mm -hmm. before, but something you and I had talked about doing. Um, and so today we are talking about the purpose and lore and relationship between masks and ritual. Yes, taking off the masks of masks as it were. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> pun away, pun away. Um, but before we get into all of that, um, Kate, listener question, what did you grab for today? Yes. Well, people often ask us, what are you reading? Where should I start? And what's your favorite book on the craft? So Kristen, what are you reading right now? Well, I think I mentioned, but I came home with like approximately 50 used books uh, from my trip to the States because I'm a maniac. Um, and many of those were nostalgic, like 90s vintage Christopher Pike, R.L. Stein, uh, Carolyn B. Cooney books that you all know I was obsessed with in my teen years. But I also picked up some poetry books and one I just finished 
actually today is Poems Bewitched and Haunted, which is part of Every Man's Library Pocket Poet series. And it has all sorts of old timey poems from Keats and Dickinson and Andrew Lang about ghosts and witches and haunted things. So we love that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also just finished Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher, a beautiful fictional fairy tale that was recommended to me by a listener who knows I love magical realism and witchy fairy tale characters. So uh, that's a really great one for anyone interested in the same. Mm. Um, But what are you reading right now? I just want to say, I feel like Keats, Dickinson, and Lang is like a version of the triple goddess in some way that I haven't <laughs> articulated yet in my I brain. Love, but <laughs> I love that. Uh, and Andrew Lang's fairy books. Wow. Big, mm-hmm. big, big magic. Um, you know, I received a message actually just last night um, asking, what's the one book on witchcraft I should read? And of course, this sent my mind really, and I put my phone down. I was like, how am I supposed to answer this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I thought about it, and um, yeah, it just all depends. But if I were to take one book into the woods with me, it would have to be either of my teacher and mentor, Robin Rose Bennett's books. Um, for me and my practice, they blend ritual and herbalism and heart-centered healing and support with practical medicinal recipes, and I just love that. So for my fellow green witches, definitely start there. Um, and then for what I'm reading right now, Kristen, you'll be proud of me. I am finally finishing up Mysteries of the Dark Moon by Demetra George. Yes. Listeners, this is a Kristen Lizenby favorite. <laughs> it really is. And I'm also finishing the first Alana book by Tamara Pierce. Uh, again, this is an old favorite for my teen years. And I know that you just read your copy as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And listeners, if you're looking for more book talk, which I know many of you are, Kristen and I have a very special episode on the schedule for you. So check back soon for a trip to our witchy libraries with a very special guest. You ready to talk masks, Kristen? Yeah, let's do it. time of year, when I think of masks, my mind transports me to Samhain. The younger, trick-or-treating version of myself loved Halloween, for this was the perfect time to set aside our current identity and exchange it, if only for one night, for another that was more exciting, magical, or fierce. Wearing a mask and costume meant freedom, because with our new disguise, we were no longer limited by the societal norms or expectations of, quote, real life. In parts of Europe's old world, the practice of wearing masks and curious clothes and going door to door during Samhain, but also Yule, the New Year, and sometimes on equinoxes and solstices, was known as mumming or guising. People who disguised themselves and went door-to-door were called mummers, and the purpose of this activity was to spread cheer and celebrate the Sabbath, to throw off the heaviness of the previous season, and maybe have a drink or two, courtesy of your neighbors. 
The masking part was to hide the mummer's identity, partly from their neighbors if they got too rowdy, and partly from the evil, meddlesome, or mischievous spirits. Because as we know, when the veil to the other world thins around Samhain and Sabbath days, during equinoxes and solstices, the spirits are more lively, they come and go as they please, and our ancestors were not taking any chances. This type of masking or mumming feels similar to present-day Carnival, a festival celebrated in February throughout many countries with large Roman Catholic populations, mainly Brazil, Portugal, also here in the Azores, and the U.S.'s own New Orleans. Carnival starts on Fat Tuesday, the day before Ash Wednesday, and the religious season of Lent begins, which means, if you partook, Carnival was your last opportunity to get out your wilds. Costumes, decorative, and humorous masks are often worn by carnival goers, and although carnival's glamour has become a tradition on its own, originally this costume was to protect the wearer. Many carnival celebrations were and still are associated with politics, believe it or not, and so in some former socialist countries, carnival was said to be the only time you could insult or even joke about a political party or agenda without being punished or jailed. And so masking added an extra layer of protection to that promise. From Barbara Walker's The Women's Dictionary of Myths and Secrets, quote, The word mask appears in many Indo-European languages and might be traced to the maskim of Sumer and Akkad, spirits of nether spheres or ancestral ghosts. Initiated Sufi magicians of the Middle Ages wore spirit masks and became mascara, revelers at their sabbats. And this probably gave rise to the French designation of a mystery play as a mask, spelled M-A-S-Q-U-E. According to Geoffrey Russell's book, Witchcraft in the Middle Ages, the Latin word for mask, masca, spelled M-A-S-C-A, was one of the church's official names for witch. I wasn't able to find anything to confirm whether or not this is still true today. Furthermore, the Latin words masca, larva, and persona are linguistically connected to those for witchcraft, death, and hallucinations. Many witches and pagans have long followed animistic belief systems, including divination and communication with spirits, including plant, animal, and cosmic or otherworldly energies and gods. The Christian church was not a fan of these beliefs, which is why they denounced mask-wearing and said that anyone wearing such a guise was possessed by the devil. But to witches and pagans, those with animist beliefs, mask-wearing was part of a sacred ritual where they embodied a god or animal ally and were channeling an ancient energy. Carl Jung suggested that someone performing a ritual wearing a lion's mask wasn't pretending to be a lion. They believed they were the lion, and that for the time being, their souls had merged and created a new psychic identity with the animal. In our episode from Season 2 about Medusa and Athena, I mentioned Medusa and her sisters, the Gorgon sisters, and how Medusa's monstrous face was a popular feature in architecture, on weaponry, and above doorways to ward against evil. 
But while Gorgon imagery is generally talked about as a face with an expression so hideous it will turn you to stone, before then, it represented the moon. In ancient Libya, there was a goddess known as Anatha. Later on, when Anatha evolved and was absorbed into the Greek pantheon, her gifts, her identities were split up, and she became three goddesses, Athena, Metis, Athena's mother, and Medusa. But back in Libya, Anatha was a powerful moon goddess born from the sea, and her priestesses wore gorgon masks during rituals to evoke her energies. In this conversation, I mentioned that the masks, these moon effigies, protected the identities of the priestesses, but also emphasized that when they wore the gorgon masks, the lunar goddess was moving through them. Robert Graves suggested that the Gorgon masks were intentionally frightening to scare away any uninitiated people who might be spying on their sacred rites. And fun little fact here, but according to Word Origins, an exploration and history of words and language by Wilfred Funk, Orphic mystics referred to the moon as the Gorgon's head. And there are so many more instances of masks in relation to magic. In DJ Conway's book, Maiden Mother Crone, it suggests that Demeter's priestesses wore horse masks, as might have the Valkyries. Dionysus Orbachus was known as the masked god, perhaps in reference to his role as a god of theater and the arts. Wearing Bacchus's mask was said to bring about unbridled ecstasy. In volume 91 of the American Journal of Archaeology, it talks about the goddess Arathia, who was likely tied to Greek Artemis at one point, Astarte, and the Phoenician goddess Tanit. In this article, it says that thousands of votive offerings were deposited at Arathia's sanctuary. Ivories, bronzes, small terracotta figurines, lead figurines, and pottery— there were also many hundreds of ceramic masks showing strong Phoenician influence and themes that possibly go back to the Babylonian era. In Chapter 2, in bulk, from the book Missing Witches, Recovering True Histories of Feminine Magic, Amy Torok and Risa Dickens discuss mask-making in African cultures as a source of magic, but also one of the oldest art forms in the world. One passage reads, quote, The designs are infinite, but the most common are animal representation and ancestor representation. Animal and ancestor masks connect people with the spirit world that traditional African beliefs say inhabits the land. Wearing masks, they are transformed, possessed. At other times, masks make the spirits visible to enable communication. Masks were part of most, if not all, rituals, funeral ceremonies, initiation rites, to ward off destruction, to bless soil, end quote. During my research, the more I peeled back the layers of what it means and why we might wear masks in myth, ritual, and when engaged in magic, the more I've come to understand masking as an element of shape-shifting. When I hear the word mask, 
The first association I have is with the poem We Wear the Mask by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, which goes, We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts we smile. And mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise? In counting all our tears and sighs. Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but, O great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but, O the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. An incredible poem by an incredible poet. And if you're interested in Paul Lawrence Dunbar and his influence, there is a wonderful essay on the Poetry Foundation by Annie Finch, the poetry witch, who joined us earlier in season three for the magic of meter, poetry, and more. And much like you mentioned, Kristen, masks are found across cultures as different tools in stories. Think Phantom of the Opera, the Chorus of Greek Plays, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Scream, Halloween, Plague Doctor Masks, or even The Mask itself. I could list hundreds of these stories and movies and notes probably, but... There are Dia de los Muertos masks, which represent calaveras or skulls. The celebration originated as a way to honor the deceased and acknowledge death as a natural part of life. There are Krampus knocked festival masks, which are based on their namesake, a mythical horned demon figure called Krampus. As folklore goes, Krampus contrasts St. Nicholas by punishing misbehaving children, and in early December, Krampus-knocked celebrators adorn handmade wooden Krampus masks and goat or sheepskin suits to the dismay or the delight depending on who you ask, of onlookers who are simultaneously celebrating St. Nicholas Day. There are Diablos Danzantes, or Dancing Devil, masks worn in the Venezuelan festival celebrating the triumph of good over evil in the city of San Francisco de Yare outside of Caracas, Venezuela. Diablos Danzantes masks resemble winged dragons and vary in size based on how long a group has been participating in the festival. The masks, which have been worn since the 1700s, are meant to represent the group's order in the devil's hierarchy, and they often take all year to craft by hand. And there are so, so many beautiful examples. Um, Kristen, I don't know about you, but I was definitely lost in the image aspect of the research today mm-hmm. and just so wish that we could find a way to make this episode multimedia, but... Mm-hmm. We'll have to post photos on on Instagram and link in the show notes for you listeners. In the Witch's Feast by Melissa Jane Madeira, a kitchen grimoire, Melissa writes about masks and ritual paired with a delicious bread mask recipe. Quote, As a magical technology, masks might be one of my favorite ritual tools, and not just because I'm a two-faced Gemini. Love that. <laughs> when you wear a mask in ritual, you embody the ensouling spirit of the object acting as both medium and mediator for the spirit force of the mask. It is an act of collaboration. 
in which the human actor gives body to that which is without form, allowing it to enter material reality and walk among us, if only for a moment. Used as a tool of sorcery in this way, the mask is a uniquely useful ritual object, a tool for mixing ourselves with an other to temporarily become something other than what we are so that we may see from a new perspective and access long-forgotten senses. While bread masks are not a common addition to magical ritual, this practice is not without a historical precedent. In Badeg, Germany, a local guild called the Berneger Bratfresser design and make elaborate bread masks, which are worn for carnival celebrations in early spring. These masks, baked on custom molds, fit the wearer's face and are bizarre, made even more uncanny by the application of colorful seeds and spices to create eyebrows, lips, and other human detail. They continue a long and often haunting tradition of crafting carnival masks in Germany, which have been made for these festivals since medieval times. And their traditionally terrifying images are used as a form of apotropaic symbols employed to drive out and avert evil and misfortune from the community before the coming spring, end quote. And masks are a part of many of these celebrations, driving evil or the devil away with this apotropaic magic. In an earlier episode, we discussed the March of the Red Devil in Detroit, a parade that takes place in my old neighborhood where Cass Corridor residents parade with disguises on to drive the devil out of Detroit each spring. If this sounds interesting to you, have a listen to episode 17, The Fae. Another potent mask I love is the costume of the Mary Lloyd. Described in Atlas Obscura, around Christmas and New Year's Eve, Welsh families might find themselves challenged by a decorated horse skull waiting for them on their doorstep, adorned in colorful ribbons and bells. This equine image of death has an especially ghostly appearance thanks to the white sheep draped over the person carrying it. As revelers sing and parade this head on a stick around a neighborhood, doors open to meet the morbid white horse in battle, specifically a battle of wits through poetry. I love it, a poetry slam Mm -hmm. with a horse skull. (laughs) This is the Marie Lloyd, a midwinter pagan tradition whereby celebrants earn food and drink only after dominating the poetry slam fronted by skeletal face. Despite being associated with Christmas, Mary Lloyd is a pre-Christian practice, and in fact, some Welsh regions choose to parade their horse skulls through town for other holidays, such as Halloween or May Day. And I love, Kristen, how so many of these masks are used in spring. I just think Mm -hmm. that that is so potent, but... Mm -hmm. The tradition's exact origins are murky, but the image of a white horse has been a powerful symbol in the UK for at least 3,000 years. This practice also incorporates the centuries-old tradition of wassailing. From Middle English, be in health, wassail was originally a sugar and spice drink of mulled ale, curdled cream, apples, and eggs. And those who partook in sharing a bowl of this boozy mixture were wassailing. This term evolved to describe the custom of begging for booze around Christmas, a time when merrymakers expected generosities that they would normally be denied. 
They'd arrive at the doorsteps of their neighbors and ask to drink from the wassailing bowl or have their own bowl filled. Modern Welsh wassailing isn't class-based, but the end goal remains the same. Wassailers earn an invitation to come in through proving themselves in a back-and-forth rhyming battle with the residents, and once inside, it's traditional cakes and ale all around, end quote. Listener, if you haven't seen a depiction of the skeletal horse, definitely have a look. It's a sight. Um, when I went to Pam Grossman's Samhain ritual at Honey's here in Brooklyn in the fall, someone dressed up in this costume and I was obsessed. Me and my friends had to like follow them around for part of the evening, but it's really cool. And I also found some ritual masks photographed by artist and photographer Chris Rainier um, in my research for his book, Mask, which looks beautiful. It's a collection of 130 masks used still in present day. About his book, he told CNN, quote, Since the dawn of mankind, we've been wearing masks, and they represent cultures that live within nature, worship nature, fear nature. Whether serving as conduits to the other world or signifying rites of passage, these masks allow the mere mortal human to become something more. In the interview, Rainier recounts a shaman warning that he would go rapidly into a trance upon putting his mask on. The mask literally served as a catalyst for his personality to change right away. End quote. And I love this thought. Masks as a way to enact magic— To create a threshold for the body, to disguise, protect, turn away, and turn into. Masks are portals, ways through, ways to become the other in order to become more of the self. And listeners, we would love to see your masks. If there's a special masked tradition, folktale, or image you love, send it our way via Instagram or the podcast email. And thank you so much for joining us today, listeners. Kristen, our 100th episode on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcastattamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune in to next week's episode for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time. <laughs>